One of the greatest questions I believe Jesus ever asked, I think it's actually two questions that they are, in my mind, some of the greatest questions Jesus ever spoke, was 26 miles away from Galilee. They were in a region called Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, this is a fantastic question for you to process in your own heart. Some of you have had professors. Some of you have had agnostic neighbors. Some of you have had coworkers. Some of you have had um, pastors or teachers give you their opinions about who Jesus is. Maybe you have heard that he was a teacher, right? Maybe you've heard he was imaginary, like he, he never even existed. That's just bad history. Uh, if you have friends who say they're history buffs and that Jesus never existed, they have just proven themselves not to be a history buff. They just like their preferences. Jesus was a magician. Jesus was confused. Jesus was a liar. Jesus was a friendly guy. Jesus skipped around in sandals and blessing people and touching people and being you know, a shiny, happy person. Like the, you, there are so many opinions out there about who Jesus is. So I do think it's a good question for you to ponder, who do people say I am? And at the end of the day, have you allowed their opinion about Jesus to form your opinion about Jesus? And is it the right opinion? So again, there's a lot of layers to that question of who do people say that I am? The disciples end up answering Jesus' question by saying, well, some people say you're a prophet raised from the dead. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're Jeremiah. Some people say you're another famous guy who speaks really good from our, our past. But then there's a shift. Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, he says, then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed. Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. I want to show you a picture. Several years ago, I got to go to Caesarea Philippi, and I got to see this place that Jesus asked this question. Now, I want you to look at this picture. Because down in this, the, the, the bowl area, there were four temples actually built into those rocks. So there, this, uh, everything has come down, but you can see remains and ruins in Caesarea Philippi. And this would have been known as the, the Sanctuary of Pan. Pan is the Roman god for uh, despair and creating chaos, which it makes sense because this is a, this would have been a scene of chaos for the disciples to maybe, you know, go back to that picture real quick. Um, if they were up on that ledge, maybe, you know, I can, I can picture Jesus and his, his disciples walking up on that top portion of things and maybe looking down and seeing a temple built to Augustus, a temple built to Pan, a temple built to Zeus, a temple built to, built to Nemesis. Nemesis was the god of divine retribution, especially for those who showed arrogance towards the gods. Like, and, and, and goat sacrificing was going on. Uh, go to the next picture real quick. Um, if you look back in that back corner, this is kind of more of what that back corner looked like. 
there was a, uh, historically, Josephus, a Jewish historian, has written about this little spot because there was a, uh, a source of water that would spit out like mist and, and goats were sacrificed and thrown down into there because there were times they tried to measure how deep it was, but no measurement could be taken. And so they would say, this looks like the gates of hell. Like this is what would have been known as the gates of hell because it was so terrifying, so freaky, so chaotic to look down on this area and for Jesus to go, guess what? I'm gonna build my church. Amidst all the confusion, amidst all the divine retribution thoughts, all the chaos, all the Caesar worship of government and power, all these things, guess what's gonna stand? The rest of time, my church. Now, if you go to that location today, there's no building. There's no church building sitting on top of that space, right? Like, yes, God has done that significantly around the world. Like, he's taken things that were marked and stamped as this is where God is dead. And then funnily enough, a church ends up being built on some of those places. And like the worship of God goes on there. And I love God's sense of humor about that. I do. But here, there's no building. There's no doors. There's no pews. Yet Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. Christ himself is the guarantee that the church will endure. Jesus is the rock. The messiahship of Jesus is the rock the church is built on. There's a lot of confusion about this statement, especially by some, some neighboring churches and that a person was to take some primacy or superiority, superior place among church leaders. And the truth is, none of the disciples would have heard it that way. Because guess what they do a few verses later? They argue about who's the greatest. So none of them got it, right? But every time you or I declare the Messiahship of Jesus, we're actually declaring the rock that the church is built on. The stone that the builders rejected became the corner stone. So everything that the Jesus is saying about the church being built has nothing to do with the people. It has everything to do with himself. He will build this church, and he's also the guarantee that it will happen. Why? Because not even hell or death could hold him. He is our guarantee that the church will endure and all of this will happen in the most unlikely of places. I, for me, just Jesus telling this to the disciples in this location, in this kind of chaos, in this kind of darkness, in this kind of unknown, in this kind of searching. Do you think he understands where we are today as a society? I think so. Because I know some of you are walking with the mentality of like, is it even worth it? Right? There's a lot of opinions out there. There's a lot of chaos. Is my involvement in a church, does it matter? I mean, I guess it doesn't really because there's a lot of questions out there. So because there's a lot of questions, I should probably not be a part of a church. Thankfully, thankfully, it's not our questions or lack thereof that hold us. 
but it is, as we will see, his presence among us. As I was saying earlier, if you look at the church calendar, you notice that today around the world is known as the day of Pentecost. Pentecost simply means 50. It's not super spiritual. <laughs> it's just 50 days. 50 days after Jesus was crucified and raised. And for 40 days, Jesus stays with the disciples he talks with them. He shares about the kingdom with them. He appears to all these different people and they're like, what? How is he alive? We saw him die. It's, a, it's crazy to, to experience this. And, and for 40 days, Acts chapter one records this. Acts chapter one, in my first book, Luke is the author. A lot of people look at Acts as Luke chap, ver, you know, chapter two. Like Luke wrote the gospel to Theophilus and he writes Acts to Theophilus about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And again, I love that the Bible records their questions because it just realizes, it helps us realize they were just still clueless to what Jesus was trying to do, right? They were seeing it about personal and national and all this stuff. When do we get to reign, right? Like that's such a great question. Now the dude you're following has shown himself alive. You've been rejuvenated. Yes, this is legit. We're gonna be great again. We're gonna be on top. Make Israel great again. Like that's what they would have been saying. Like it's time, it's happening, right? Jesus says, the Father alone has that authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me, me, everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In Luke's gospel, Jesus, the results of the Son of God coming into the world are documented for us. In Acts, Luke's continued work, he documents the results of God's Spirit coming into the world. Luke spends a great detail recording Jesus' words and actions in his first book and in his second book, the book of Acts. He ultimately documents for us the fulfillment of promises that Jesus makes in the Gospels. Jesus promised that his disciples would do greater things than he did. You know how that was possible? Because it just gets multiplied. Rather than Jesus being in one place, the disciples could go other places. The church would be able to spread out over the earth. Rather than looking to 30 miles of one region of the planet, guess what's going worldwide? The work and the teaching of Jesus. Jesus promised that the disciples would stand before rulers and kings and be persecuted. 
guess what happened? They did. Jesus promised that his disciples would be overcomers. Wait a minute, that sounds like it's gonna be hard. I thought that because we're with you, Jesus, everything would go great and we'd be on top of the world and people would be coming to us. No, he promised you will be overcomers. Jesus spoke of his message leaving the borders of Israel and going worldwide. For the disciples, that would have been like, eh, I don't know about that. Guess what? It's going worldwide. And with all that momentum, with all the momentum of going, we thought you were dead. Now you're alive. Let's strike while the iron is hot. Jesus says, hold your horses. Wait. Such a strange plan, right? Like when something's fresh, when something's new, when something's great, when something's just been experienced, you're like, I want to go. Jesus says, don't you dare. You better hold your horses. You better sit tight. Because the power that is going to be required to do what I am asking you to be a part of in the world is going to be greater than just knowing that Jesus rose from the dead. It's more than knowledge, friends. Just because you have a knowledge does not mean Jesus is saying that you have the power yet, because they did not. Waiting doesn't seem to be the right strategy here. It would have been hard, it would have been difficult, it would have been strange. You know, the disciples... 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus ascends to heaven. And I love that Acts records all the disciples are doing is standing there with their mouths wide open. Like it's recorded. And an angel has to show up and be like, guys, get back to it. Like he's gonna return just as he left. So don't stand around staring into heaven like some of us do. <laughs> get back to it. But wait on the spirit. While they waited, I do wonder if their excitement waned at all. Like I do, right? Like you kind of come down off of your mountaintop experiences a couple of days later, don't you? Right? See, even then, it wouldn't have been enough to take this message to the world. Jesus said, wait. Do you wonder in their waiting if they felt the weight of doing all the things Jesus did? I would have. I would have been looking at my friends who had been through this process and going, do you really think he's serious about us healing people, teaching people about the kingdom that he taught us about that we'd never heard of before? Do you really think he wants us to like cast out demons and stuff and like help the poor like he did and multiply food and, oh boy. This sounds intense. Like, do you ever, th I mean, I, I would, if I'm a disciple, I'm sitting there going, oh, this is getting real. Like, we just saw this dude raise, appear to us, eat with us, and then ascend to heaven, and now he says to wait. And this waiting is supposed to be a time when we're just like excited, but I'm getting a little fearful because I don't think I have it within me to do what Jesus said to do. Exactly. 
you're right where you're supposed to be. Because 10 days later, Acts 2 records, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. All those who had believed the message of Jesus Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee and yet we hear them speaking in our own languages in one moment. Probably that felt like an eternity to get to. Everything changed. The question of how will we do this that was probably spoken in terror and in fear was answered. And it wouldn't be with Jesus beside them. It would be with the Holy Spirit inside them. One of the hardest truths to unpack with a human heart is that the only way to full life is not to fill your life with things and stuff, but to allow the presence of God to fill a life. And it is the fuel to do everything Jesus asks us to do. Pentecost was a Jewish festival that marked 50 days after the Passover meal was eaten. It celebrated the first harvest, and later it was tied to the day that the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai and the law was given. In Jerusalem, there could have been upwards to, at this moment, at Pentecost, there could have been upwards to one million Jewish travelers living in Jerusalem at the time. They would have been scattered from all over the world and they would have headed back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover together and many of them would have stayed for the 50 days to stay between Passover and all the festivals in between in spring and they would have been in the same place. So you are seeing a gathering of people from all over what would have been the known world. As faithful Jewish people, they would have been celebrating God's grace to Israel, starting with the deliverance of slave, out of slavery from Egypt. They would have been celebrating, recounting the stories of when God breathed his breath and parted the seas, like opened the way for them to go to new life. They would have been celebrating the day that God's fire, his presence fell on the mountain and his law was given. There are many who look at Shavuot in the Jewish custom as a anniversary of way, a, a wedding celebration, a, a celebration of vows that would have been made to God, that they would have said to God and God said to them, 
God told them, he said, I will bring you out. I will accept you. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. It was a marriage celebration. They would have been celebrating these things, God's goodness to them. And just like, like wind blew in the Old Testament, as it parted the seas, as in Ezekiel's vision, it blew breath onto dry bones and brought them to life again. Wind rushes through this gathering place and fills the whole place up. It's audible. They felt the wind. They heard the wind. It drew people in. It didn't cause them to freak out and run away. It actually caused people to come closer. Just like they saw fire fall on the, the mountain or Moses saw fire on the burning bush, God's visible presence was not coming down to fill a temple, but it was resting on the new temple. It was marking them that things are about to get different. Things are changing. And it's not going to be about a building with brick and mortar. It's going to be people that the presence of God fills. Sinai, when God's presence fell, the people were like, uh, we can't listen to him anymore. Moses, you talk to us. There was fear and trembling, right? At Pentecost, there was wonder and curiosity and awe about what was going on. At Sinai, there were stone tablets that God wrote his law on, handed to Moses. Big, big production, right? At Pentecost, God's word is written on people's hearts. And at Sinai, there was an outward commitment made from people. Pentecost, there is an inward, transformational commitment God makes to us. God is a masterful storyteller. He does not waste anything through history. The physical marking of these people would have, bring, would have brought about the full story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman, remember? Remember when she was trying to distract Jesus from the fact that she had multiple husbands and all that different stuff? She was like, I hear that, they, why is it that some Jews worship over here and Samaritans worship over here, Jesus? Don't mind the person behind the curtain. Let's talk about something else, right? And Jesus says, there's gonna come a time when it doesn't matter where, because true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. How is that possible? Because now his spirit goes with a mobile temple, you and me. And this is happening right now, 24 hours a day, seven days a week around the world. Wind, fire, but there were also words. They were heard by people in their own languages. They were marked, the disciples and all those that were in that room that day, they were marked not to go, it was the craziest experience. I love crazy experiences. No, when they were filled, they got up and they started telling a new story, which really is 
a foreign language if you think about it, right? Because the new story they're telling is about God's kingdom, God's power, God's ways, right? That's a foreign language to us because guess what language we love? My power, my kingdom, my stories. So yes, it was a foreign language, but it was a foreign language, meaning... Imagine you're talking to someone who speaks French. You speak no French, but somehow you start speaking French and telling about how great God is to this person who only can speak French. But you're like, I don't speak French, but this person's hearing the gospel in their language. That is what's happening in this moment. Listen to verse nine. Here we are. This is like all the people. They came rushing to see everything that was happening. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed, perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. The languages that the disciples were speaking that day were not mysterious or unknown. They were dialects. They were native languages. Luke is listing people from the north, the south, the east, the west, island people, desert people, Jewish natives, Gentiles who converted. All of them were hearing about the power of God in their heart languages. This is a work that continues to this day when every believer in this room, a pastor or a a missionary, a Bible translator comes close to a group of people and does what they can to speak of Jesus's name and glory and that it would cover the entire planet. When we come close to a people and, and make an effort to speak in their heart language, it changes things. See, we can throw out a bunch of words and it not be understood by anybody, but when the the Holy Spirit comes, fills us, we begin to, how do I speak their language? Not so that I can make or water down a message, but that I might deliver the message to the right place. That is what we do when we aim to bring this powerful message of redemption to a people. When in the Old Testament, the story of Babel, do you remember that? There's all these people gathered in one place. And what does God do? He confuses their language. Guess why? Because they were trying to tell their story. They were trying to build this tower to heaven. Like, it's not really gonna get to God, right? God's not intimidated or scared about any of those things. Oh man, if they keep building, they're gonna, be, they're gonna build right up to my gate. I don't know what to do. I should probably knock it down. No, it's not gonna happen. The point is, These people were boasting in their abilities and their efforts and their story. That's our natural, right? Guess what happens when languages get shifted here? Confusion, separation, ascending out. Guess what happens at Pentecost? Not confusion, but invitation, gathering, coming back to. Why? Because they weren't telling their story. They were telling God's story. Everything changes at Pentecost. And the people knew just how crazy this was. They knew that these were Galileans, and folks, every culture has their stereotypes. Galileans, they were known for their accent, and they liked to be looked down upon 
by these people. But yet something different was happening. Verse 13 is one of the greatest responses recorded in all of the scriptures. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk. That's all. Peter gets up and gives the greatest sermon introduction known to man. Listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk. As some of you are assuming, nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. (laughs) Greatest sermon intro ever, right? What you're hearing is not babble. It's the story of God. And Peter continues, no, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will all prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter sees the attentive crowd, the curiosity, the questioning, and he explains that this isn't just by accident. God planned this. He intentionally pours out his presence on young, on old, men and women, and wonders would show the world that Jesus is Lord. Verses 22 begins, people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know, but God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed with the help of lawless Gentiles, You nailed him to a cross and killed him. How'd you like that on your resume, right? But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. Down to 32, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand, and the Father, as he has promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see in here today. For David himself ascended into heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's first sermon makes a beeline for the resurrection of Christ. He doesn't run to self-help. He doesn't run to, you better get it together, people. He doesn't run to be good. He runs to the words, Jesus is risen. And we are witnesses of this. And now you too get to know the story of a reconciled relationship with God. He is the Messiah He is the son of God. He is the savior of sinners. He is the source of God's gift, the Holy Spirit. And the scriptures make this promise that the entire history of the church is rooted in one reality. 
Jesus is alive. Without that statement, there is no church history. There is nothing. Peter makes a beeline to it. Verse 37 records the crowd's response. Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by our Lord God. The Peter, then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day. About 3,000 in all. The day of Pentecost is the most important day in the history of the church. Next to the death of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, because it is the day God equipped his church to do what he asked. I need you to hear me very clearly. The Holy Spirit is not your little activator go button to accomplish your plans and your purposes on the earth. Your, the Holy Spirit is not your little superpower window into the supernatural to get what you want. In fact, it's the very opposite of that. You know what the Holy Spirit is? The Holy Spirit is the one dwelling in you that keeps you from running after your own kingdom, your own glory, your own name. The Holy Spirit keeps you from longing to boast in yourself. The Holy Spirit causes us to boast in Christ alone. There is some backwards, upside down thinking about the Holy Spirit. Friends, the Holy Spirit was given to us to teach us and remind us of everything Jesus has said, and if you are not on board with Jesus, you can forget about the Holy Spirit. I promise you, if you're looking for some experience so that you can accomplish your tasks, your will, your kingdom better, that's not it. While we are saved by faith, Peter tells the people whose hearts are burning, repentance and baptism accompany faith. This is why we can hear Peter saying in Acts 2, again, verse 38, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 5 tells us more clearly, you, the disciples saying, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, who is given by God to those who obey him. I need you to hear me. This is not a rug being pulled out from anybody's feet. Oh, you said it was by grace, and now you're saying it's by law. No. You thought it was grace, but now to get the Holy Spirit, I have to do things and earn things and, and all this process? No. Obedience comes out of faith. My actions your actions reveal what you have put your trust in. If you believe that money is your answer, your actions, you will obey money. You will do anything and everything to get to it, right? If you believe education is the greatest thing, 
Your obedience to education will produce actions out of your life. Peter is not making a switcheroo here. When I say I believe God, that he sent his son, that is both a faith statement and an obedience statement. Because faith leads me to believe I do need to repent. I do need to turn from my sins and turn to God. And my faith leads me to believe I do need to be baptized. I do need to walk through these waters. Both obedient acts that flow from my faith, repentance and baptism, both flow from faith. In these simple acts of obedience, it is evidenced where my faith is at. There's no switcheroo going on. It's all by the grace of God. Obedience and the power to obey. Guess what? It comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. Seems a little unfair, right? Like he does this work completely, like he's supposed to, so we don't boast. As the band comes, we close this morning. My first question is to those of you in this room who have been trying to do the Jesus thing without the Spirit of God. You've been trying to be good, right? Like, that's what we prefer in this country. Like, if I can just be a good person, that's cool. My question to you is, have you heard the risen Jesus today? Do you need to place your faith in Christ's death, resurrection, and return? Just like the words of Peter pierced their hearts, they were, they were like, what should I do? The Bible says that if your faith has been placed in Christ, you will turn from your sins, you will turn to God. It's not just about turning away from all the stuff that's killing us, it's actually turning us to the one source that will give us life. We all get so obsessed with, oh, I just better not do bad. And then you just end up being somebody who's walking around in circles. Repentance is a very clear picture of I was chasing this, now I'm alive because I'm after the heart of my father. Do you need to be baptized? For the forgiveness of sins. In these steps of obedience, the promise of God's Holy Spirit comes, fills, enables you to see your sin defeated. This is what Jesus was speaking of in John chapter 7. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me, right? What do I need, a bottle of water? No. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. Acts chapter 2 is a fulfillment of all these things Jesus said. But what about those of you in this church? You've, you've done that, right? You've repented, right? You, you're, you live a life of repentance. You know that. You get that, right? You've been baptized, You've known the forgiveness of sin. Pentecost is a big time reminder 
of our waiting on the Lord. How good are you at waiting? Probably terrible. Most of us are. We live in a self-serving, give it to me in the moment society, right? Guess what the church does? Church in America does the same thing, right? Well, we don't know what we're doing, so let's just do something. I remember hearing a speaker referencing someone else he heard. So I'm hearing this third hand. It's not mine. He said, I remember a church growth guy talking, and he said, it was a big statement. Remember, not my statement. I told you it's heard by heard by heard person. That if, the, if God chose to just remove his Holy Spirit, just, just, just because. He said 95% of what the church does would go on unnoticed. And then he asked all these pastors in this room the question, what are you so dependent on God for that if he doesn't do it, it ain't gonna get done? Jesus said he would build his church. Pentecost is a reminder of that. And it's a pointer to the way we are to live our lives totally dependent on his spirit. I wake up in the morning and I go, God, thank you so much. Thank you for filling me with your presence today. Take me where you will. Let me have eyes to see. Help me obey. Help me walk in obedience. Help me walk in the fruit of the Spirit. You said it's for freedom that set me free, so don't let me get bound up again. Let me stay free to serve you. Right? So weird. Free to serve. But that's the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling his church. This morning, Pentecost was the day that revealed without him, we cannot do any of the things he asked us to. If you're exhausted of living the Christian life without Jesus, wait, wait on the Lord. He's not in a hurry. We're urgent people, he's not. What would happen if you said, Lord, I want to walk with you because without you, I can't. I want to walk in your ways because without you, I can't. I want to take the gospel to the world, but without you, I can't. I may have learned every evangelistic strategy there is in the world, but without your spirit, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Pentecost reminds us we are totally dependent as his church. This morning, we do have baptism, it's available. I know we don't like spontaneous things, we like to plan four months out for everything, I get it. But if you're like, yeah, that's, that's me, I need to walk through those waters, we're available and we'll do it. I'll just be standing over there, maybe you'd like to be prayed for, maybe you're like, I just don't sense his presence and I, I really need you to pray for me, I'd love that. We'll just journey with you, we can make some of the elders available, they'd be willing to pray for you as well. But if you're like, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to be baptized today, we can do it. You can either do it in the clothes you came in or we've got clothes you can change into. It's up to you. But what are you waiting for? Just like the eunuch asked, what, what am I waiting for? He's like, I don't know, there's water over there. Let's go do this, right? We don't have to go to the French Broad, which I never want to do again. We can do it here. Or you can go to the French Broad if you want that. But, but Peter said, because their hearts burned, each of you, repent, turn from your sin to God, 
be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's the promise.